So oh my yeah, goodness. I've, I've got my coffee with my Baileys in it, almond milk Baileys. You're so lucky. I really hope that Ben shows up uh, in the middle of us recording with a beer for me. That would be heavenly. I would bring you a beer. I know you would if you weren't all the way over in California. Yep. <laughs> Are you a good witch? Or a bad bitch, bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to rule your lips, shake your shoulders, shake your hips. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Um, hi. <laughs> hi. Hi, Deanna. Hi, Hannah. And hello to everybody who is listening. You're listening to Good, Good Witches, Bad Bitches. In their car, on the subway, wherever you may listen. We are a yep. podcast where we talk about ladies and ladies and ladies. Yep. Yep. Oh, mm. Deanna, did you see? I, I tweeted about it uh, a couple days ago. What? But did you see my, my tweet about the review that we got? No. On iTunes? Oh, my God. I tagged you, but I wasn't sure if you would see it. I'm, I think I'm you were. still really shitty at Twitter. Like, I try. Uh, it's probably for the best. And this <laughs> review, it's like, it's so baffling. Um, Uh-oh. Is and, it a bad and, one? They're, yeah, it's they're terrible. They're trying to enter. They're entering for, <laughs> for like, to win a pin. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my God. How funny would that be? <laughs> they were like, "I just really want this pin," but first I have to say some terrible things. What did no, it say? No, it was just. It was just basically this dude who was like, and I'm sorry, dude, if you're listening, but like this is the podcast, so basically it was like, I want just the facts. I don't want your opinions about what happened to these women that you talk about it's getting to be too much and it's pretentious (laughs) it was much longer than that but it kind of was like that's not a thing that's not really the point hold on anyway go to twitter it's it's also yeah i think i tagged you so you should you should have access to it well but anyway notifications on twitter (laughs) fuck (laughs) that's probably all from me um but i when we started introducing the podcast, it made me think of that because I was like, man, we're a podcast about women. Yeah. But we're also a podcast where you and I talk about the women that we are discussing and their lives and the things they went through. And sometimes that makes us angry. And sometimes we analyze the situations they were in with a modern lens. And if that's not appealing to you, go somewhere else. Like, you know, lack of respect to a community. I it's totally it's it's kind of bananas. But, you know, gossip you heard at the local bar or wherever you get your opinions from. Yes, sir. I get all my opinions from the bar. (laughs) All of them. And the facts, too. (laughs) Stop acting high and mighty like a pretentious person. You're a product of your time. They're a product of theirs. So get over it. What does that mean? It means just say what I want you to say and nothing else. But no, but what does that mean? It just means tell me the story straight and don't 
have an opinion about it. What do you mean get over that they're a product of their time? What we're, we always say is that we're really proud of these women for what they were able to accomplish in the time that they existed <laughs> because it I was really this, hard. I think this dude feels really called out by a lot of the stuff we say about the patriarchy and about the shit that these women deal with and dealt with. Yeah, but also I feel like we're lived. actually a pretty... Like, I'm... I, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm, I have a pretty level head about my feminist opinions. I'm not, I'm not a turf. I'm not like, you know, I know, I know we both. I mean, I'm, I think I know, I know I tend to make you go, Oh, Hannah, stop sometimes. But But like, you know, he says that at first the podcast was refreshing. Yes. Their lives may have been tragic. I don't understand. But it's what, baffling. Whatever. It is. Whatever. It is. But anyway, if <laughs> if all you want is to hear some some facts about people, this is maybe not the podcast for you. Because we're going to give you the facts, but we're also going to give you our opinions on them. Well, then what? Yeah. Otherwise, just go read a Wikipedia article if you want just the facts and no editorializing. Wikipedia is great. <laughs> go to Wikipedia. If you want to learn about women, you could do your own research like we That's try right. to do. That's right. Oh, whatever. That's so funny. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, thanks for leaving a review, I guess. It is kind of like I, I actually do appreciate that, that that review is there because I feel like it sort of illustrates in a really good way what our podcast is about, whether that was the intention or right, not. Right. So, well, you know. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, but I'll uh, I don't know who you're doing today, but I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things that have been, you know, going on this week because it's been we, a we can we can touch on them. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to feel like our listener base is probably just as uh, enraged and just as um, on the ball as we are. Mainly, I just don't want it. I don't want it to seem like. <laughs> We're not paying attention to that, to what's happening in Alabama and now Mississippi. Uh, I think it was that just introduced it and passed and their own. like Ohio and Georgia. Uh-huh. Ohio and uh, somewhere else. They're all trying to. Anyway, we, we see that that's happening and, and it's totally fucked. And actually, if you want an episode about um, a, a woman performing abortions and sort of dealing with the way... Uh, men have always viewed abortion and women's bodies. Check out our episode on Agna Dicey from, I don't know, last year sometime. I'll link to that as well. But uh, yeah, so we're paying attention. We know what's happening. I also, I just in case, um, just in case anybody didn't notice, this article come out in, within all of the chaos, I kind of wanted to read just a little bit from this Daily Beast article. Are you cool with that? Yeah. Um, the headline is Trump administration to LGBT couples. Your out of wedlock kids aren't citizens. Um, so that's, that's fun. That's a constitutional thing to say. Totally. So I'm just going to read a little bit from this. It starts, no parent can ever be fully prepared for the arrival of a new baby. But when Roe and Adil Kaviti brought home their newborn daughter, 
uh, Kesem two months ago, they figured that they were as ready as they could be. After all, they'd gone through the same process two years earlier with their son Lev, um, who was born, who was also born like Kesem with the help of an egg donor and a gestational surrogate in Canada. Uh, it was as straightforward as one can imagine, Rowie told the Daily Beast, recalling the ease of bringing Lev home in late 2016, the infant's newly printed Canadian passport in hand, soon to be supplanted by an American one. But this February, when Kesem's fathers contacted the U.S. consulate in Calgary to obtain a consular report of a birth abroad for their daughter, the legal equivalent of a birth certificate for Americans born outside the U.S., something was different this time. They first indicated that they needed proof of our marriage, which I found quite odd, Rowie said. They needed the original marriage certificate, which we didn't have with us. But I didn't actually think anything more about it. I thought, we don't have time for this. We'll just deal with it in the U.S. Oh, Rowie and Adil, uh, yeah, Rowie and Adil obtained Kesem's Canadian passport, which was a stopgap and traveled back to their home in the United States. But Kesson was about to become the latest victim of a government policy that effectively de-recognizes her parents' marriage, granting her no automatic rights to American birthright citizenship, despite the fact that both of her fathers are U.S. citizens. Okay. That policy, Kesson's fathers told the Daily Beast, poses a unique threat to LGBT families and could change the decades-old legal understanding of what the word family even means. Uh, yeah, this is, this is uh, Mike Pence whispering in Trump's ear. Mm-hmm. Yep. For years, President Donald Trump has called for the elimination of birthright citizenship, which we've heard about. I, I think yeah, most of us have heard about podcast. that. Yeah. Um, for the children of undocumented immigrants who were born on American soil, mm-hmm. those children, slurred as anchor babies, are accused of being birthed with the sole purpose of tethering their non-citizen parents to the United States. The Which, by the way, a lot of like rich Russians do. They go to Florida to give birth so that they can have babies that are born American citizens. Yeah. Like as a tourist thing. Like, oh, let's go make like so our kid can have dual citizenship. Just just yeah. want to point out that, that happens. They're white and Russian. Uh, Yeah. The Trump administration's promised executive orders ending this, quote, loophole have not materialized. Okay. But the president's war on birthright citizenship has many fronts, and one little noticed State Department policy has now resulted in a reverse version of Trump's anchor baby scenario, where the (laughs) children of U.S. citizens born abroad are effectively being stopped at the border. Wow. So it is a new policy that they are enacting. Um, And basically... I mean, specifically for, I guess, what? I don't know. Continue. um, Last summer, the State Department issued new rules unilaterally changing the department's interpretation of the Immigration and Nationality Act, a 1952 law that, along with the 14th Amendment, codifies eligibility for a U.S. birthright citizenship. Um, The U.S. Department of State interprets the INA to mean that a child born abroad must be biologically related to a U.S. citizen parent, even Uh. if local law recognizes a surrogacy agreement and finds the U.S. parents are the legal parents of a child conceived and born abroad. If the child does not have a biological connection to a U.S. citizen parent, the child will not be a U.S. citizen at birth. 
Wow. So, but there, but this could affect this affects heterosexual couples too. Absolutely. Uh. Yeah, but they're but, not the ones who like have to use alternate methods, like male, to, you know, two men in a in a gay marriage can't give birth. They have to use a surrogate, or they c- have to cis adopt. Men, yeah. Yeah. So. You know, it's it's finicky, obviously, but it's like just it's just an example of the little things that happen when we're not. But I but won't say not paying attention, but like, I mean, if you have an egg donor, isn't one of the parents the biological father? Theoretically, maybe one of them. Yeah, but I don't know. But yeah, but I don't know. I don't really know what the rest of the. Um, yeah, it's whatever it is. It's it's bullshit. Yeah. There's this whole article is very interesting, but it's much longer. So I am going to link to it in case anyone is curious to read the rest. But about what else this fucking bullshit administration is trying to do to strip rights away from people? Yeah. Wee. Wee. I know. I'm I'm sorry to everybody listening to this and possibly the next few episodes if I get angry <laughs> and, and ranty. Because that's just how I'm feeling right now. I'm Angry just like... feminist. Ra-boom-ba. Yep. Yep. So that's me. That's what I have to contribute. Do you want to talk about something that's potentially more... Um, uplifting? Uh, uplifting? <laughs> encouraging? Yes, I do. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Are you a good witch? Or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on on our our Patreon. Patreon. (laughs) Oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. We have a brand new patron this week. Thank you so much to Jennifer S., a good witch, obviously, for your generous patronage. We really appreciate it. And if anyone else wants to check us out, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. You will get a shout out like this. Uh, thank you again, Jen. We really appreciate it. Well, then let's uh, transition over into happier things. Please do. Please tell me something good. So I got inspiration um, to do this person and one other person uh, from while I was at uh, Disneyland (laughs) this week. Disneyland! Um, I went to California Adventure um, and I was in line for the... um, the roy the the roid the ride um it's called soren um soren across the world what is it 
Sworn Over the World, something like that, where it's basically, <laughs> it's like this big theater where you go and you're like in a plane, quote unquote, and you're flying around really cool places. Um, and it, it's like immersive, there's scents and things. But anyway, we're in line and like as you're passing through line, there's a bunch of airplanes, like different models, old models. And then they have this like Aviators Hall of Fame. And as I was walking down the Aviators Hall of Fame, I kept being like, where the fuck is Bessie Coleman? Where's uh -huh. Bessie Coleman? And I was looking for her. But then I realized that it had a specifically California bent because initially California Adventures rides were all meant to be about California. So the first huh. ride, it was soaring over California. So oh. that's And so it was a bunch of Californian okay. aviators. And I was like, okay, well, where are the people of color and where are the women? Of course, uh, Amelia Earhart came up and um but hmm. then uh the first woman of color that i saw i was like oh and i wanted to tie it in because we did an episode about bessie coleman so i thought it'd be a good follow-up to talk about the first asian american aviatrix oh! and her name was katherine chung <laughs> amazing yeah and so i was like i hope that this won't be too big of a, a like a um uh I don't know what I'm trying to say. I Anyway, I'm really excited to talk about her. Um, as long as she doesn't die as tragically as Bessie did at the end of her story, uh, then oh, no, she does No, no, she, she, <laughs> okay. I'm not going to spoil the end. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, but, uh, but then I also want to talk about another um, Asian-American um, pilot uh, who, who was a... Um, contemporary of Catherine's who was the first Asian American woman to fly for the U S military. Oh, so, but it's so like, they're sort of intertwined. They cross paths cause she, uh, what Catherine got her pilot's license and then Hazel, who's the other woman, um, got her pilot's, li name. pilot's license later. Um, like a few months later or like within the year. So they were like the first two. Um, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so here we go. I'm Heck sorry yeah. I have to turn away from your face to read my computer. Um, I understand. So, Catherine, and uh, I, as per usual, apologies for any mispronunciations because I'm just a dummy. Um, Catherine <laughs> Suifun Chung, her her name she was born with was Zhang Rifen. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. Um, <laughs> either way, she anglicized her name later in life. Um she was born uh, in December 1904, which I would like to point out is just a year after the Wright brothers' first flight. Um, oh. Yeah. So, she, like, she was born before, like, airplanes were a thing and then became an aviatrix, like, not long after. Um, okay. And she was born in Enping, Guangdong province in China. <laughs> um, her mother was a student at a Bible school. I don't know if she was a perpetual student or whatever. But that's every, every article I read was that her mother was a student. And I was like, okay. Um, her father was a businessman and a merchant. And he worked with overseas. Um, uh, he worked with the community in America of Chinese Americans in America. So he was like going back and forth between the two countries. Okay. Um, she was educated in uh, Guangzhou when she was a child. Um, to, 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 she graduated from, I think, high school in 1921. And after she graduated, she got a passport. She was 17 years old and she moved to the United States with her dad to pursue her initial passion, which was music and piano. She was a pianist. So Very she came cool. to Los Angeles and she studied at um, a number of prestigious institutions over here. 
um, which included the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music, the California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, and she went to the University of Southern California. Um, and while she was going to school, basically, her dad was like, hey, do you want to learn how to drive? And she was like, oh, yeah, fuck yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> and so um, he took her to Dicer Airport, where there was like lots of roads to practice driving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yep. uh, she saw the planes taking off and going into the sky and was like, well, fuck, I want to do that. Uh, hold Forget on driving. Can I learn how <laughs> to do that, please? Yeah. Um, so she pretty much knew immediately that she wanted to learn how to fly. Um, she also had a cousin who happened to be a pilot. And then not long after she first saw planes, her cousin took her up in the air. And she was like, well, now I, she felt like really free and like really excited and, and knew for sure that that's something that she wanted to do. Um, a quote I wasn't interested in being in the kitchen like women were expected to do. Uh, I wanted a life filled with adventure, she said. So, um, she was uh, studying at USC, like I said, um, but she was there for three years and she quit school when she married her father's business partner, George Young. Um, oh. But, which I was kind of like, uh. But their marriage apparently came with two stipulations. Um, she was not going to change her name. And um, she was not going to give up her dream of flying. Okay, so it was not it. It was a love marriage. It seems like like a. It seems like it was mostly advantageous. All right. I like that. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Um, I'm into that. But so she said she wasn't going to give up her name to marry him. But that was the time that she anglicized her name from Zhang Rifen to Catherine Chung. Um, Yeah. So. Yeah. By 1931, she had two daughters with George. Um, her daughters were Doris and Dorothy, which I think is super cute. <laughs> Doris and Dorothy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she, uh, in 1931, that's when she was like, I'm determined to go learn how to fly. This is when it's happening. Let's go. Um, she was informed that um, and, and enraged when she found out that Chinese flying schools didn't allow women to enroll. Oh, no. Um, so she was like, well, I guess I'm definitely going to be doing it here in the U.S. Um, even though in the U.S. only 1% of licensed pilots at the time were women. Um, yeah. So. What year was that you said? 31. Damn. Yeah. Um, and she enrolled in her first aviation class then. Um, she took classes with the Chinese Aeronautical Association in Los Angeles. Um, I learned that, excuse me. Um, it was like a thing that there was this um, um, group called the Chinese Benevolent Society. And it was like basically a bunch of rich Chinese businessmen who wanted to pool their money to buy planes and um, help those in the Chinese American community who wanted to learn how to fly. Um, I think because they were having um, uh, like conflict with Japan. And so they wanted oh. to teach more like they wanted to pull their money together to teach more Chinese people how to fly planes so that they could help with the war effort if they wanted to um, back in China. Um, so it, the, that's how she was able to go. And Okay. Uh, but she was like one of the only women um, who were given that opportunity. Uh, but on March 30th, 1932, she received her private pilot's license and was widely reported uh, through newspapers as the first Chinese woman to earn, earn a pilot's license in the United States. God. Mm-hmm. 
And it was after she got her license that she gained her American citizenship. And she continued to study often with military pilots to learn aerobatics, aircraft structures, international routing, navigation, and other skills which would improve her versatility as a pilot. So she was a highly, 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 highly skilled pilot. Damn. Um, says it's, it was unlikely that Catherine or most of the other Chinese American pilots would have been able to fund their training or have access to airplanes due to both financial issues and prevalent racism of the era if it weren't for the Chinese Benevolent Society. Um, the typical civilian pilot at this time, because obviously aviation was still really new. Um, so the typical civilian pilot was more like Howard Hughes, who was a really rich white dude. Um, Oh yeah. Like they can just buy their own plane. Exactly. Have them built, hire people to design planes, blah, blah, blah. So he would be more likely to be a civilian pilot than someone who was a Chinese American with immigrant parents. So. Almost as soon as she was licensed, Catherine began performing at fairs and air shows along the California coast. That seems to be, like, the thing you do. On par, like, shades of Bessie Coleman there. But, I mean, apparently, um, I learned that that was just, like, a huge thing back in the day when aviation was new and exciting. And it wasn't just a thing that people were using in the military. It started to become a thing that, you know, people, like, everyday people wanted to see a plane fly. And so if you learned how, if you became like a really skilled pilot and were able to do tricks, it was like going to the circus, like an aviator or an aviatrix would yeah. show up into town and it would be like a huge hubbub and people would all come and it, they'd make pretty good money, apparently. Well, um, and it's kind of like, I think it's kind of like a lost art at this point. We don't really see people doing that no, anymore. It's, I mean, people will do, I know there's like an air show in, um, Broomfield in Colorado, but it's like military planes, so they get like, which makes sense, but it's always like around July Fourth, yeah. and it's it really disturb, like it's very uh, loud, and causes a lot of annoyance for those of us who lived in Rock Creek at the time. Yeah, um, they're like jets. <laughs> yeah, it's like so loud. It's not just little planes doing tricks. So I mean, it's kind of cool. It's a product of its time, and yeah, we don't get to see that shit anymore. Right. Really, it was like, it was like the daredevil. Um, career of the time. Yeah. Um, so Catherine Chung uh, made a name for herself as a popular barnstorming pilot who drew crowds across the country, eager to watch her do aerial stunts like spiral dives and barrel rolls. Um, her love of stunts and flying coincided with an era, here we go, in which pilots were often regarded as celebrities. Mm. Uh, her performances were thrilling in particular to the Chinese American community in California, which took up a collection to get her a plane of her own to fly. Um, here we go. Harkening back to last week, Hollywood darling and fellow Asian American heroine Anna Mae Wong spearheaded this movement. What? And $2,000 was raised to secure a 125, uh, 125 horsepower fleet biplane for her. So it was like Anime. they were both Californian, Asian American, Chinese American women who, except for, you know, Catherine was obviously born in China. So she like earned her citizenship and Anna was um, American born, but like they were very um, beloved by the Chinese American community in Los Angeles and California in particular. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. She was like, let's get you your own fucking plane. (laughs) Like you deserve your own plane. I don't know. Um, It was like like around 1935 because her like biggest aviatrix years, I think were 35 to 37. That makes sense. Um, Catherine participated in a lot of racing events like the Los Angeles Women's Championship in 1935. There you go. And Chatterton Air Race in 1936. Mm. Um, 
1935, she was invited to become a member of the International Association of Women Pilots, which was also called the 99s. And um, she became friends with Amelia Earhart, who founded that group. Oh, so she's pretty tight with Amelia Earhart, who was like, let's make a group for female pilots (laughs) so that we can all be like, hey, how awesome are we? I Um, wonder how many people were in that group. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Um, Curious. Yeah. Um, So that same year, 1935, she uh, uh, obtained her international flight license because before it was just a private pilot's license. Um, And when you have an international flight license, you can be a commercial pilot. And she was the first Asian American woman to become a commercial pilot. And what did Um, that mean at the time? I mean, there were commercial flights. Okay. I mean, there weren't as many as there are today. Um, One of her biggest dreams was to go back to China and work for the Chinese government to teach aviation to Chinese people and Chinese women in particular. Like she wanted to change it so that you know, Chinese women could start to study how to fly. Um, She also believed that the possibilities for developing air services were boundless and recognized the potential of air service to areas which didn't have adequate infrastructure to meet transportation needs. Uh So, like, she really had, like, these big, bold dreams to, like, try and start to get that set up. Um, But... uh, Damn, that's cool. Yeah, and so, specifically, following the Japanese invasion of China in 1937... She was like, this is the time. I'm going to go to China and open a flying school to do my part for the the community out there. Um, and, which obviously, here I wrote this, it's redundant, but it would have opened the door for many Chinese women who would have otherwise encountered great difficulty in becoming pilots. Um, so she toured a bunch of Chinese American communities to try and raise money um, for the venture. And she, I think, got like $4,000, I read somewhere. Damn, um, at the time, that's... It's quite a bit of money. So much money. Yeah. Um, do, 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 do. She purchased a Ryan STA plane, um, but then her cousin, the one who inspired her to become a pilot, uh, died while testing the plane. It crashed on uh, its no. test. Yeah, which obviously is extremely upsetting. And uh, Catherine's father, who was also like in really poor health, like nearing his own death, um, he was really worried for his daughter's safety and he asked her to promise to give up flying so that she wouldn't die the same way as her cousin. Oh God. This poor heartbroken father was like, please don't, please don't do it. Um, that she, sucks. Yeah. Man. She did continue to fly for a few more years, but, um, uh, Amelia Earhart's disappearance, um, who was her friend, um, her Fuck. cousin's death, then her father passed away. And then she learned that her brother in China died. And so no. finally, she decided she wanted to give up flying because she was the sole um, support for her mother at the time. And she <sighs> she just really wanted to be able to take care of her mother and all of that. Oh, that um, breaks my heart for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, during World War II, she became a flight instructor in the United States. Um, but apparently, I, I didn't leave this in, but she had a really hard time getting a... Um, uh, certification to become a flying instructor because obviously in World War II um, there was a lot of particular bias about Asian Americans even though she was Chinese American um, it, it was like I, there, it was hypothesized that she was looked at with a lot more scrutiny because not only was she a woman she was Asian um, but eventually God she did it. apparently according to this article um, and then when the war ended she bought a flower shop 
um, which she operated until her retirement in 1970. So she became a florist. Oh, that's um, actually really sweet. <laughs> I'm kind of into that. Yeah, her last recorded flight was 1944, and then you know the war ended, and she was like, "I'm gonna run a flower shop." Um, <clears throat> Man, yeah. In 1989, uh, she went to China with one of her daughters um, to visit, um, but it was like there was a lot of media hubbub and attention. Um, Mm -hmm. She was celebrated by various associations, the local government, and obviously the aviation industry. Um, So it was like a really big deal. Um, Until the 1990s, she lived in Chinatown in L.A., uh, but then she decided to move to Thousand Oaks, California, where she would remain until her death. Um, In March 2001, the Chinese Consul General of Los Angeles presented her with a medal on behalf of the Chinese government for her contributions to the uh, aviation industry and as an aviation pioneer. Um, Oh, man. Yeah, the ceremony for that was held in conjunction with her induction into the International Women in Aviation's Pioneer Hall of Fame. Damn. Yeah. Um, I mean, good. (laughs) Yeah. So she died in September 2003. <clears throat> at the age of 98. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, she was buried in the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Hollywood Hills. Uh, she's been recognized by a display at the Aviation Museum in Enping and the Beijing Air Force Aviation Museum in China. Um, she has been recognized as the, uh, by the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum as the first Asian American aviatrix. And uh, Flight Path Walk of Fame in Los Angeles has honored her with a bronze plaque bearing her name. Damn. So one of my goals, if I can get around to it in my time here, I wanted to find Anime's star mm-hmm. and take yes. a picture of it. I want to find it and take a picture of it for the Instagram. But now it's like apparently, as long as it's not like right by LAX, this Flight Path um, Walk of Fame, I might be able to find <clears throat> Yep. Um, Catherine's plaque. Yeah. So, my God, you should. Yeah. You really should. Yeah. This is where I wanted to take like a little mini turn, because as I was reading about Catherine Chung, um, she was the first Chinese American woman, obviously, to become a pilot. She was not the only Asian American woman pilot of that era. Um, And that's when I learned about Hazel Ying Lee, who would become the first Chinese American woman to fly for the U.S. military. Um, Do, 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 do. Now, was Catherine... When she was a flight instructor, was yeah. that for the military? I think that so. That was for the military, I, think I assume. So. Yeah. Because it was World War II and... Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, but it wasn't... She wasn't... She didn't have to join up or anything. Right. Right? I mean, I don't know okay. if... It, maybe she was teaching commercial flying because um, a lot of oh, commercial right. pilots were probably drafted into the military or whatever. But yeah, that I just would make sense. that she did that during that time. Yeah. So, All right, Haz- cool. Hazel Ying Lee... Boom. She mm, was born yeah. in Portland, Oregon, to Chinese immigrant parents. Her father was a merchant. Her mother was a homemaker because she had eight kids. So that's uh, that is an overtime job. Um, God. Apparently, according to Wikipedia, despite widespread racism and anti-Chinese bias of that time, um, Hazel grew up living a pretty full and active life. I don't know if Portland has always been relatively more liberal. Um, she... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> they have a pretty, like, strong white supremacist yeah, uh, we, yeah, thing now, going on right now. Um, um, yeah. So she graduated high school. She played handball, was a swimmer, 
Um, she learned how to drive as a teenager. Um, and Interesting. She, that's a theme. Yeah. Um, she graduated from high school in 1929. So it didn't say the year she was born in the article that I read. But if she graduated in high school in 1929 and Catherine graduated in 21, she's presumably a few years younger. Um, yeah. And so after graduating high school, uh, Hazel got a job as an elevator operator at a department store in downtown Portland because it was one of the few jobs that a Chinese-American woman could hold during this time, which is fucking ridiculous. Um, Ugh. Yeah. Um, in 1932, she took her first airplane ride with a friend at an air show. And, so there's a theme here. Uh-huh. Uh, soon thereafter, joined the Chinese Flying Club of Portland and uh, started taking flying lessons, despite opposition from her mother, apparently. Um, <laughs> also a theme. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, her sister Frances said... Uh, quote, it was the thought of doing something she loved. She enjoyed the danger and doing something that was new to Chinese girls. So she she kind of wanted to be a pioneer, I think. Yeah. Like, there's no other Chinese girls I know doing this. I want to. Yeah. Um, so in October 1932, she earned um, her pilot's license. So that's okay. pretty quick because it says in 1932 it's when she took her first airplane ride. So she went from taking her first ride to getting her license within a year. <laughs> Um, yeah. Apparently, Catherine Chung also um, flew her solo for the first time after 12 hours of training. I was like, ah. <laughs> it does make me wonder, like, what kind of regulations were going on I'm sure at the there time. were none. I'm sure there any. were barely any. <laughs> In speaking of Lee and the handful of other Chinese-American women pilots of the time, author Judy Young has written, quote, although few in number, these first Chinese-American aviators and their attempt to participate in a daring sport broke the stereotype of the passive Chinese women and demonstrated the ability of Chinese-American women to compete in a male-dominated field. Um, while she was in Portland, she met her future husband, Clifford Louis Yim Chun, who was also a Chinese pilot. So that I thought that that was cute. It's like pilot Did they meet in the they air. Meet at like, <laughs> oh my God. Did they meet at like the club, like the flying club or? I, I would assume so. <laughs> that would make sense. Um, yeah. let's see. There's, there's like a lot of parallels between the two of them, which is interesting. Uh, in response to the Japanese invasion of China in 1933, Hazel went to China with the goal of joining the Chinese air force. Um, even though she was American born, but I guess probably cause her parents were Chinese. She could probably. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. She got there and actually did join. Whereas Catherine. No, she didn't. <laughs> she wanted oh, to she join. Didn't. Oh, okay, okay. My next sentence. Despite the need for pilots, um, the Republic of China Air Force would not accept a woman. Oh. So she straight up just was like, I'm going. And she showed up and was like, I'm a pilot. Let me in. And they're like, no. And they're like, Whereas Catherine wrote, got a letter from a friend oh. ahead of time and was like, there's no women pilots. And she's like, well, I guess I'm not going. She didn't waste <laughs> her time. Catherine did her research. <laughs> <laughs> and Hazel was more, oh. more hot-headed and just went right over there. Yeah, that um, sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. So, but she stayed in China, um, settled in Canton, and she spent the next few years flying for a private airline. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So at the time, uh, of course, she was one of a very small number of female pilots in China. And in 1937, obviously, we know Japan invaded China. And Hazel decided to stay in the country despite the war and was in Canton when hundreds of civilians were killed in Japanese air attacks. Um, oh, friends speak of Lee's calm uh, while bombs fell all around 
and remember her effort to find shelter for her friends, neighbors, and family. Um, and thanks to her efforts, everybody survived the attacks. Apparently. Damn. Yeah. Um, she tried one more time to join the Chinese Air Force. They were like, nope. And so she decided um, to go back to the United States in 1938. I'm amazed that she stayed as long as she did. Yeah. Like, she, I, I don't know. I don't know that turning around and going back to the U.S. would have been that easy. Right. I'm sure for you sure. probably it's, need it, I'm sure to, it's like... a super long journey. <laughs> yeah. You need to get some more money first. But, like, yeah. damn. Um, and to stay there and yeah. help her f- friends and family out when shit's going down. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't surprise me that she was able to do that because as, an, as a pilot, especially in those rickety planes, like, they were not... As you know, Bessie died by falling out of a plane. Yeah. You know, they weren't like super duper safe necessarily at the time. So you have to be calm under pressure in a lot of ways. There's actually a parallel here with your last comment about Bessie falling out oh. of her plane. But Uh-oh. in a di- sort of a different way. <laughs> well, I'll get there. Oh, no. Um, so right. in 1938, um, she moved back to the U.S. She went to New York City. And she worked for the Chinese government as a buyer of war materials. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, then a few years later, um, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor happened and America went to World War II. As the war claimed the time and lives of American pilots, it became clear there were not enough male pilots to sustain the war effort at home. What? What? With the ambivalent (laughs) support of Army Air Force Commander Henry Hap Arnold, the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP, was created in 1943 under the command of famed aviator Jacqueline Cochran. Oh. So she, I don't actually know that name, I, but I don't now either. I want to look her up. Yeah. Um, experienced female pilots like Lee were eager to join the WASP and responded to interview requests by Cochran. Uh, members of the WASP reported to Avenger Field in Sweetwater, Texas for an arduous six-month training program. And uh, Hazel was accepted into the fourth class. She was the first Chinese-American woman to fly for the U.S. military. During her training, it was reported that she fell from the aircraft she was riding in when the instructor made an unexpected loop. Her seatbelt wasn't fastened correctly. And at the time, she saved herself by using her parachute. So they decided to do a loop. And she just went, wee, and fell out and was like, well, here we go. Uh, she ah. she landed in a field and walked back to the base, dragging her parachute behind her. Oh, my Lord. I just imagine that image like, I should have fastened my seatbelt better. <laughs> but at the same time, because just a little annoyed. You tell me you're going to do a loop. <laughs> yeah, you got to say those things to me. So I know. Although I you mean, should probably be wearing I... your seatbelt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Um, although they were flying under military command. The women pilots of the WASP were classified as civilians and were paid through the civil Ugh. service. Yeah. Uh. And since they were classified as civilians and paid through the civil service, uh, they were offered no military benefits. Um, and if a WASP member died in the line of duty, no military funerals were allowed. That's really cool. Holy shit. Really neat. Way to go. Um, That's fucked. Yeah. They were often assigned the least desirable missions. Duh. Shock. Such as winter trips in open cockpit airplanes. Oh, God. Which sounds like a nightmare. 
Um, commanding officers were reluctant to give women any flying deliveries. It took an order from the head of the Air Transport Command to improve that situation. So they were like, no, 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 no. We don't have any pilots. We can't send this delivery. It's like, well, we've got plenty of women. And they're like, no. And then finally it's like, you fucking let them fly. Um, Vaginas make it hard to fly planes. Yep. Um, obviously. Uh, upon Duh. graduation, she was assigned to the third ferrying group in Romulus, Michigan. Their assignment was apparently critical to the war effort. Um, they delivered aircraft, which was being manufactured in large mu- numbers, um, and converted automobile factories um, to points of embarkation, where they would then be shipped to the European and Pacific war fronts. So they were in charge of delivering warplanes. Yeah. Um, in a letter to her sister, Hazel described Romulus as a, quote, seven-day work week with little time off. Yeah. I mean, full-time I mean, during an active war. Like, come on. Um, war doesn't doesn't take a break. I guess not. Um, when asked to describe her attitude, a fellow member of the WASP summed it up in Lee's own words, quote, I'll take and deliver anything. <laughs> she was described by her fellow pilots as calm and fearless even during forced landings this is my favorite story because it's ridiculous um one emergency landing took place in a wheat field in kansas and this is when i knew i had to include her a farmer armed with a pitchfork chased her around her plane as he was shouting to his neighbors that the japanese had invaded kansas Oh, my God. She obviously (laughs) evaded his attack, told the farmer who she was, and demanded that he stop. And he did. (laughs) Thank God. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. That image. Just like, ah, the Japanese are here. They're here. Like, I just think that's just so funny to imagine how stupid this family. (laughs) Old men with their pitchforks. I mean, obviously, the plane she was flying must have had American Air Force insignia on it. Like you would think. You'd think. Oh my Whatever. god. Um <laughs> Kansas. He was very sheltered, clearly. Um yes. But I like that she was like, excuse me. Excuse I'm Hazel Yingli. I'm American. I'm flying for the US Air Force. Stop. And he's like, oh, okay. Oh. Oh my lord. Hazel was a favorite with her fellow pilots, known for a great sense of humor and being very mischievous. She apparently used her lipstick to inscribe Chinese characters on the tail of her plane and planes of her fellow pilots. Um, One lucky guy who happened to be a little bit on the heavier side had his plane dubbed unknown to him, fat ass. Oh, (laughs) I just think that's so She's like, ooh, it's Chinese characters for good luck. And she's fat ass. And no one will know. It's like those tattoos people get in, you know, like it's other languages for prosperity. And it just means like blowfish. Hot dog. (laughs) (laughs) I like that blowfish. Um, Apparently in a big city or small country town, she would always find a Chinese restaurant, supervise the menu and would have really strong opinions because apparently she was a really good cook. Um, fellow. What didn't this girl do? I don't know. Fellow WASP pilot Sylvia Damas Clayton observed that, quote, Hazel provided me with an opportunity to learn about a different culture at a time when I didn't know anything else. She expanded my world and my outlook on life. Oh. In September 1944, Hazel was sent to pursuit school in Brownsville, Texas for intensive training. Um, she was part of a the, class 4418 flight B and went on to be among the 134 women pilots who flew Pursuit, 
which is um, faster, higher-powered fighters like the P-63 King Cobra, um, P-51 Ooh. Mustang, and P-39 Era Cobra. Um, apparently, Hazel's favorite plane was the Mustang. And she and the, the other women in that class were the first women to pilot fighter aircraft for the U.S. military. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, what year did you say that was? 1944. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. So that was, right. that was September 1944. Um, okay. On November 10th, 1944, she received orders to go to the Bell Aircraft Factory in Niagara Falls, where she was to fly a P-63 King Cobra aircraft to Great Falls, Montana. Um, during that, uh, the war, she and other pursuit pilots delivered over 5,000 fighters to Great Falls, um, which was a link in supplying Soviet allies with planes under the Lend-Lease program. Um, and so from Montana, uh, male pilots would fly the fighters onto Alaska, where Soviet pilots waited to fly the planes to their home bases. Oh, wow. Yeah. Woof. So, what an assembly line. Uh, yeah. Um, bad weather apparently delayed the mission in Fargo, North Dakota. Fargo? Yep. And on Thanksgiving morning, the weather cleared, which allowed Hazel to leave Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> and so then she was um, cleared to land in uh, Great Falls, Montana. But at the same time, apparently a large number of P-63s approached the airport and there was confusion on part of the air control tower and her plane and another P-63 collided. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, the aircraft were engulfed in flames and she was pulled from the burning wreckage of her airplane with her flight jacket still smoldering. Um, oh. So she died two days later. From burns oh. that she received in the accident. Um, and apparently, oh. sadly, only three days after learning about Hazel's death, the Lee family received another telegram informing them that her brother Victor, who was serving with the U.S. Tank Corps, had been killed in combat in France. So oh. they had to bury two of their eight kids at the same time. Um, oh, that's so sad. And one, only one got a military funeral. Presumably. Is that right? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe because she did the intensive training and was per- the pursuit program now. Maybe. Maybe. I don't Fingers know. Fingers crossed. Um, the sh- They picked out a burial site in um, Portland. The cemetery at the time refused to allow the family to bury them in their chosen spot, citing cemetery policy that didn't allow Asians to be buried in a white section. Fuck you. Yeah. So they took them to, uh, to um, pass on that one. Um, they fought that. And um, eventually the family won. And, uh, oh, yeah, Hazel was laid to rest in a non-military funeral, um, buried alongside her brother on a sloping hill in Riverview Cemetery overlooking the Willamette River. Wow. For over three decades, members of the WASP and their supporters attempted to secure military status for female pilots. In March 1977, um, the efforts of the Women Air Force Service pilots were finally recognized and military status was finally granted. 38 pilots of the WASP died while in service to their country during the difficult years of World War II, and Hazel Lee was the last to die during the program. And in 2004, she was inducted into Oregon's Aviation Hall of Honor. So those are two really badass Chinese-American aviators. Yeah, and they were raring to go. Yeah. I mean... I don't look at planes and go, gosh, I wish I could do that. Granted, we've had planes around for a very long time. But, like, the idea of flying and deciding deciding in the moment that you first see a plane, that's what I'm going to do with my life. And, like, now I'm going to dedicate all of my pursuits to that. 
Though I mean, and then to have you know, honestly, I think it. it it's I, badass. It's, I mean, it's very common, I think, among a lot of pilots that that's what they feel mm-hmm. when they're little kids yeah. when they first see a plane or are first on a plane. Yeah, you know, it's a feeling. You just know. You know, you want to fly. <laughs> I just, I can't, I just can't even imagine, especially having to do it at the time and then having to or wanting to go through the double difficult, the doubly difficult situation of trying to be part of the Air Force or like, you know, fly for the, fly for the government and have them say, well, maybe. (laughs) And then, okay, sure, but like, we're only going to send you on X, Y, Z missions and... You know, like to have to fight against that your entire life when all you want to do is fly planes and fight for your country. I don't know. It's it's just amazing how much they had to do and had to go through in order to make that happen. Right. Yeah, yeah dude. It's bananas. Which uh, on, on a fun note, um, speaking of lady pilots, while I was at California Adventure, I had my photo taken with Captain Marvel. <laughs> oh check you out i saw her like symbol around and i was like do they have a a carol danvers that comes out yet does she come in and greet people and i looked it up and she didn't got in line and it was awesome i'm so happy for you fictional female pilots yay (laughs) after i talk about real life awesome female pilots um apparently Um, it's it's a theme it's a vibe lady pilots are great yeah there should be um some movies about those women Oh, for sure. You know? Let's get on it. Get on it. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood, are you listening? We're, we're kind of part of that, so we should maybe be working more toward that. Um, we'll get there. Anyway, I decided this week not to do any on this day because we are releasing late and it would mess us up next year when we get to this time. <laughs> so I was like, mm. We'll just put a pin in it. We had like a long intro anyway, and then you can just tell me what you're excited about and we can go from there. Oh, my goodness. What am I excited about? I uh, I right before we got on this call, I saw the news that they cast the um, adaptation that they're doing of the hating game. Have you read? No. Hating game. What is that? Oh, my God. It is (laughs) so good. It's a rom-com. And it's about these two people in in a publishing house who are both assistants to their respective bosses, but they're constantly trying to one-up each other. And they really believe that they hate one another, but they don't. And then they fall in love, and it's wonderful. And it's so fucking funny. I'm not surprised. Uh, you may have either seen the news today that they cast it. So Lucy Hale is going to be one of the characters, which I will be very interested to see how that goes. And the other guy is on Arrow. He's not the main character on Arrow, but he's on Arrow. And they look very sexy. So, you know, I'm sure it'll be. Ooh, as with all I'm sure it'll CW be everything. shows. Um. <sighs> yeah. So I was very excited about that. And I also watched the trailer for the new Ali Wong movie that is going to be on Netflix on I think May 31st she's doing that a just, movie yeah it's a fucking rom-com it looks so cute it's got Randall Park uh-huh and Ali Wong 
And Keanu Reeves makes a, well, in this trailer, she seems to be able to act. I mean, that's probably insulting. I've just only seen her stand up, so. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's very funny. The, The trailer makes it look very funny. And basically, like, her character is somebody who has become very famous in in recent years um, and she's become engaged to Daniel Day Kim. Oh my God. Who is so sexy. And uh, (laughs) I can't, I can't with that man. But he, he, you know, calls off their engagement at just the wrong time. She's like just gotten home to her, to her hometown. And she's like, prepared for him to be there and he just calls and he's like never mind and so she ends up hanging out with her best friend from childhood as played like, by randall park played by randall park i love him and it's just adorable so i'm very excited about that that one's gonna be i think in the next what 15 ish days sure 31st may 31st yeah uh so yeah those two things came came into my life just in the moments before we started started recording (laughs) and I got very happy (laughs) well yay so rom-coms hell yeah why are you still wearing shoes sorry I like shoes (laughs) well awesome yeah dude uh so that's that's that I think that's that for the week I think that's that for the week. Sorry that and this episode came out late, but it, uh, we're coordinating some complicated schedules this week. Yeah, I was traveling. You're traveling. I, now we're uh, well. I'm home. I'm gonna be home in a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much, and to those of you who got your pins. Oh my god! Thank you so much for posting about them. I'm thank so you for excited. posting about them. Yeah. I know they look so good, and I'm just I'm very excited that we have them, and that you have them, and you like them, and thank you all very very much. We appreciate you and your support um, and your love and your and constructive your love. criticism. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not so constructive criticism that's good too and uh we will talk to you next time yeah bye guys bye peace out wait i gotta do that again peace out witches well, bye bye that was really Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. <laughs> Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. 
Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.